Hello, you're listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. I am Russell Brand, so I'm listening to it as Russell Brand. Uh, Under the Skin is promoted by, no, wait, sponsored by me and my rebirth tour. Come and see my rebirth tour, would you? Woking on the 3rd of May, Oxford, 10th of May, Southport on the 23rd of May, Aylesbury, 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June. That's going to be a good gig at the Watford Coliseum. I really, I really think it's worth going there. Sir Elton John, Jerry Halliwell, Vinnie Jones, all in attendance in the balcony. Very unlikely. Or Skegness on the 15th of June. Get your tickets at russellbrand.com. Right, now, if you like this show, go and subscribe to it, please, and review it on iTunes. Only five-star reviews, please. I've noticed, I've been reading these reviews back, most of them... Very, very positive. Some, some real sour pussies have gone out of their way to do a one-star review. Dad, don't give me one star. Take that. You'll bring down the average. Get off there with your one-star reviews. And the rest of you, get them five-star reviews pumping. Get it out there. More delicious power for under the skin. More, more. Now, I'm going to be having a fantastic conversation with an academic today, Professor Anne Phillips. We're going to learn an awful lot. Subscribe to our podcast. Come and see me on tour. But other than that, you're free to do what you want. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Anne Phillips is a professor of political theory at the London School of Economics. She's been a feminist since the days of the women's liberation movement and much of her work explores issues within feminist political theory. Among other things, she's written about the relationship between equality and difference, the over-representation of men in politics, areas of tension between multiculturalism and women's rights and what goes wrong when we think of our bodies as property. Her books include Engendering Democracy, The Politics of Presence, Multiculturalism Without Culture, Our Bodies, Whose Property, and The Politics of the Human. Anne lives in London and has two sons. Anne, thank you very much for doing Under the Skin. Yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. Would you mind uh, talking about, like, the, well, firstly, the reason I'm doing this podcast is because I'm at university. I'm doing an MA in Religion in Global Politics. Prior to undertaking this course, I was involved in sort of like a national and at some stages international conversation about the relationships between politics, power, media and the management of information. And there were points where sort of like me, isn't like I intuitively got involved in rhetoric that led to sort of, I don't know, for me, sort of some complications and some frustration. So I like, as I've said to the previous guests on the show, uh, my intention is to educate myself and our listeners in, in, uh, in some of the ideas that are important and defining of our time. And, and I suppose like that feminism is an area where I've perhaps been, I'm beginning to realise perhaps, especially ignorant. Is it like when we spoke briefly before on the phone, you said that there are a lot of misunderstandings and misapprehensions about what feminism even is. Would you set us up for the next hour by giving us an understanding? Well, I'll try to. I think I, I mean one of the things that's very clear is that people have an enormous resistance to the the, the label feminism or the idea of feminism. Um, so people people often kind of say uh, there's there's this kind of phrase that people come up with in which they say, you know, I'm not a feminist, but and then the but they go on and say, but of course I believe men and women are equal, you know, but of course I think women should have equal pay for work of equal value, you know. But of course I think fathers should be as involved in looking after their children as mothers. And you kind of, you listen to this and you think, so what is it? What is it that's kind of stopping you <laughs> from saying that you're actually prepared to commit to being a feminist? And I think, I think the reason that, that people do stop at that point is, is first that to be a feminist, it doesn't just mean thinking that we should all be equal. I mean, it does mean thinking we should all be equal, but it usually involves some idea that there are certain kind of power structures that are stopping us from that, right? So that there's a kind of, there's a, there's a struggle involved mm. and people will resist because people don't like changing power relations. So, so I think that's the kind of the point at which people who, who might, you know, would of course say, yes, of course, I don't object to people, women being equal to men. And but there's a reason why they're nonetheless very resistant to this label of feminism. Yes, I'm curious about that resistance, both from women and men, and it suggests to me that perhaps feminism has been negatively portrayed somehow, and 
and is seen to be uh, somehow has been encumbered with more than just gender equality and the right for women to have a, a voice that is self-determined and self-defined. I suppose, like, is it the sort of cliched idea? Like, like, I suppose any argument from outside the mainstream, any challenge to the status quo, if there is a legitimacy to the argument, and obviously equality, as mm. you've pointed out in your previous work, is one of the great motifs and ideas of our time. If you can't challenge it legitimately, then it's best to just strap it up with prejudice and baggage and say, well, feminism's about, like, so, I don't know, some somehow about unreasonable demands, unrealistic demands. And I suppose women that won't declare themselves feminists, or perhaps even men that won't declare themselves feminists, are resistant as a result of that erroneous definition. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's true, though. I think, I think very often the way it works is, is the uh, trivialising of feminism, so that feminists are represented as being oh, obsessed with language, uh, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, does it matter what particular words you use? Or does the, it? Uh, actually, I do think language matters. Yeah. I think language kind of shapes the way we come to think about things, mm. you know, so I think if you, you can get very easily into a kind of dehumanising of people if you, uh, you know, ad- adopt certain kinds of language. What's a good example of the dehumanisation or delegitimization of feminism through language, Anne? Well, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, uh, women uh, and particularly young women perennially talk about is being is being referred to as if they're animals, you know, yeah, like birds. Sort of birds, you know, or cows, if to be more critical or, mm. you know, so it's, mm. uh, it, it's it, at one level, of course, it's harmless, you know, and, and it's rarely, though, sometimes it does come with malicious intent, but it's not usually intended maliciously. Mm. But it kind of builds up layers and layers of layers of kind of somehow you're not seeing me as a human being. And what does that say about how you think about the relations between men and women? I would have clung on to my right to use that word birds. Yeah. Like as if it was some sort of white Essex male's version of an N word that they were using to describe right. other people. <laughs> but like... I came slowly to recognise, whilst not as articulately as you just described it, the damage done by that kind of language. And along with, I read a book actually, uh, uh, for reasons that will become obvious, a book on sex addiction. And it talked about how the language that men used, even in terms of sort of describing women as girls, was uh, sort of derogatory and a diminishing language. And since reading that book, I thought, I'm not going to do that anymore. Because one of the counsellors in this theory is a book written by Neil Strauss, actually, who famously wrote a book about womanising and gaming and like the sort of, you know, glorification of objectifying women, actually, called The Game. He then went on to write about, oh, no, don't do that. I subsequently became a terrible sex addict and it's ruined my ability to relate to myself and to my own femininity and women and people in general. And he sort of went to a sex addiction treatment centre and one of the female counsellors said to one of the other patients if you keep using the word girl I'm going to assume you're referring to children <laughs> right, and right. you're a paedophile yeah right from now on yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so th- so that that's kind of um I mean I think that that kind of trivializing of what feminism represents is uh is part of the way that kind of people build up their resistance to it the the other thing is that I mean if if you're if you have a kind of feminist analysis of power, you do actually think that we're all, um, in a sense, we're, we're in kind of these sort of networks of relations which encourage us not just to be men and women, but actually to act out certain kinds of ways of being men and women. And, and people are kind of quite invested in the kind of person that they're acting out. And they feel that what feminism is saying is that you're the wrong kind of person, right? That you need to change the kind of person that you are because the way that you're acting out masculinity or the way that you're acting out femininity is a real problem. And there's so that people kind of attach a certain kind of... Uh, um, almost as though, as though feminists have the power to coerce, almost a kind of coercive power to feminism. I mean, if... You, if so when I, when I was growing up, so I, I, I kind of struck lucky. I grew up in a a family of uh, three girls and one boy, and, and my brother was the youngest, so for a lot of the time my childhood was three girls. And never occurred to me to think that girls were less important than boys. Um, but when I kind of think about, when I think particularly about my teenage years, I, was, I think I was kind of pretty hard on my mother. I mean, if you can imagine, a family of four, um, 
my family had kind of quite a conventional division of labour. My father went out to work. My mother looked after the four of us, the house, cooked my dad's dinner. And one thing that was completely clear to me was that I did not want to live a life like my mother. Mm. So I think I was a bit patronising towards her as I was growing up. Do you feel bad about that? Yeah, and in fact, interestingly for me, it was it was kind of coming coming into contact with feminist politics that for me changed that, that I kind of came to see how easy it is to patronise women for all kinds of choices that we make in our lives that are part of all kinds of complex institutional and social pressures. And I, I kind of came to think very differently about what my mother had been doing and her role and the extraordinary significance of what she'd done bringing us up as well. Well, so, you came to see it as a, a great role of sacrifice and an empowering role or...? I, that would go a bit far because I do think that her life was was confined in many ways that she herself resented. Um, really? So it's not that I think that uh, it was enormously empowering. But, you know, the, the work of caring for children is incredibly important. And to kind of like just be dismissive as I was in my, in, I suppose in my early years, I kind of thought in order to be me, I have to repudiate all of that. Mm. And uh, I think it was, for me, it was feminist politics that well, made me see things differently. So prior to feminist politics, so why, why did you repudiate your mother prior to feminism? If it was not a result of feminism, what was it that made you think that your mother was somehow inferior or unfulfilled or not doing things right? What was it? I suppose I, when I think about it, I think of it just in terms of I was of, a, I was of that kind of generation, uh, born in the 50s, all kinds of opportunities in terms of uh, education that certainly my mother uh, didn't have. Mm. Um, so that I could look to a future in which I would have a potentially fulfilling career, um, in which I might, you know, I'd leave home, I'd kind of, you know, move to different cities. Um, so that the life of a housewife, to me, just seemed extraordinarily kind of limited and confined. Um, so I don't think at that point it was feminist ideas that were producing that. It was Why would you resent her for that? <laughs> no, she no she resented no, I think she had some resentment of her position in life. I think she did feel confined. So mm. it wasn't so much that I resent. I think I patronized her. Right. Right. Can you imagine being patronized by your fifteen year old daughter? Well you'll probably I find at some point it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this will happen to you. But uh, so so I suppose this kind of comes out of me saying I think some of the resistance to feminism is that people people read it or experience it as patronising, right, as telling people, well, the way you are living your life is not the right way. Funnily enough, for me, if anything, feminism was what helped me move beyond that. How? I kind of just, uh, first of all, that I, I came to see that I just came to have a much stronger sense of all the many um, institutional arrangements and kind of power structures that kind of confine all of us, right? So I suppose, in, I suppose when I was growing up, I probably thought initially that I was doing what I chose to do, that mm. I was kind of like completely self-determining. Mm. It becomes eventually clear to you that none of us is, that we're all kind of, we're all drawn into acting out various kinds of roles. And one of the mm. very powerful roles that we all act out is the role of being male and being female. And, you, you know, the, the more you become aware of that, the, the more absurd it is to kind of go around saying, well, you're doing it the wrong way and I'm doing it the right way, because we're, we're all very much part of that, of those structures, I think. Yes. Professor, I'm sometimes I call people that are professors professors just so I can just, hear myself yes, say yes, professor because yes. it really elevates me. I feel. Um, when did it? You said then that when you were with your uh, two sisters and your little brother, three sisters, three sisters, and no, you're brother, right, two sisters. I was one of them. You're right. Arguing, you're arguing with me about your own childhood, <laughs> and I'm winning. <laughs> well, um, well, you said that it never occurred to you that women were inferior to men. Yeah, but that suggests uh, at that point. So it suggests there was some point where that information hit you yeah. can you describe yeah. that experience yeah, yeah. so um, okay so I think my initial experience of it was in fact in terms of uh, seeing the way in which I had kind of almost accepted that right uh, so that um, 
So when I went to university, so I went to a single set school, as many people did in the time that I was growing up. So I wasn't. Was that the fifties or sixties or? Uh, so in the sixties, I was in secondary school in a in a. No, I not wasn't in secondary school in the fifties. You said fifties yeah, earlier. Okay, right. I don't. I'm not good at numbers. <laughs> Next week You're we'll right. be discussing maths and sensitivity, <laughs> <laughs> basic manners. <laughs> no, so so yeah, so it, so when I went to university, um, I really became aware of how lacking in confidence I was in mixed environments, you know, so very quiet in, in class. Why? Why? Well, I think I had kind of bought into the idea that uh, somehow the men seemed to have this this extraordinary confidence in asserting their opinions. And uh, it, had, it had never struck me in my single-sex school that it was an issue, but now I was in kind of a mixed environment. Was you confident at the single-sex school? I was, I mean, I wasn't the kind of, I wasn't the most uh, vocal of all of my friends. But yeah, I was quietly confident, yeah, right. quietly confident. But once you were around men, you thought they were like some yeah. swaggering braggart shouting their mouths off. Well, when I, when I eventually learned to think of them like that, then then things got easier. <laughs> but uh, so so there was that experience of um, of realising how much... I had myself bought into a, ki- a kind of acceptance of a sort of inferiority, right? So that was part of part of the process. Um, I, I can't I can't say that in terms of my my work life that I kind of experienced kind of anything really significant in terms of discrimination. Though I do see looking back that uh, I I was much less ambitious than than young men of my. Uh, age would have been so didn't put myself forward for new jobs and so on and then and then of course um children and uh yeah it's uh it's it's kind of pretty hard combining parenting with uh with being uh with a fulfilling career there's this really interesting statistic from the house of commons that uh, actually i like you, I'm bad on numbers, so uh, I never remember precise statistics, but it's roughly like this, that uh, about 75% of men in the House of Commons have children, mm. uh, which it sounds to me as though it might be slightly less than the national average, but, you know, roughly in line with it. Mm. Less than 50% of women who are members of Parliament have children. And when you think about what that means, I mean, basically that's saying it's so much easier for a man to be a parent and combine it with having the, the demanding job of being a member of parliament than it is for a woman. A woman has to have some kind of exceptional kind of circumstances like, you know, a rich partner or a very helpful partner, a very supportive partner, something that will make it possible for the woman. And I, I think that's a very kind of revealing statistic and I think yes. that's something that operates in lots of parts of life. What I'm starting to sense and from uh, listening to you is that uh, we are unable to see our own conditioning because its parameters lie beyond our personal horizon. So we're unaware, perhaps, of how, like, you know, with my own inadvertent sexism, growing up in the context I grew up in, that's acceptable language. It's ordinary language. So I wouldn't encounter the idea that that is sexist until people go, oh, no, 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 here's this perspective. And I can understand now. And perhaps with women... Uh, are taking on board, uh, are, being, are being inculcated and enculturated insidiously to the point where you wouldn't even notice. When you said that thing that you were less ambitious than yeah. male counterparts, yeah. that's yeah. you've taken on yeah, the, the ideology of your culture yes. without yeah. Yeah. knowing it. Yeah, yeah, thinking that I was, you know, a very independent person, but actually realizing subsequently that I wasn't. How much is what do what you do? At, how much is what you do as an academic and a writer and a thinker driven by these emotions, by this personal experience of disempowerment? How much of that is present in your work? Not sure it's that, but I'll tell you what is really present in my work is a very kind of, uh, I mean, a very kind of burning commitment to equality, right? So, mm. I mean, that for me is the kind of, is the crucial thing that underpins feminism. Uh, and it's the crucial thing that, uh, you know, for me you know, is what matters in uh, in life and what we find very difficult to do more than pay lip service to. So I think of my of my writing and my teaching as very much about just getting people to kind of think 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 a bit more um, closely about what we mean when we just this notion that oh yes we're all equal now just trips off our tongues. 
um, and all the ways in which that isn't actually the way we practice, uh, that, that isn't the way our institutions are set up, um, and that, that isn't the way in which the structures of our society really encourage us to be. So, so that, that's what drives me. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think it's so much driven by um, personal experiences of disempowerment. Um, but, but that clearly, I, one, it makes sense that that's kind of part of why the notion of equality has become so important to me. Because you've yeah. experienced inequality... In, in yourself, I'm not saying that in myself, a yeah, personal yeah, grudge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't. I just wanted to make it clear that that's not what no, it's all about. Absolutely, because <laughs> but what was it? I'm, what's interesting to me about gender politics and equality is that the parameters that it, it hits are mostly economic, ultimately, uh, or a lot of them are. Yes, is yeah. that right? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think. I think gender politics is. It's particularly interesting because it's, it really does have these uh, two different levels. I mean, a lot, and, and one of the kind of the optimistic things about it is that a lot of it is things that we can work on ourselves, right? You mm. know, because to the extent that it's about getting to grips with uh, assumptions that we've kind of we've accepted or roles that we've fallen into. All of that kind of part of uh, of what our kind of gender regime does to us. You can begin to kind of combat that at a kind of individual level, and people do. And I think a lot of the changes over the last, you know, 30, 40 years reflect that. But there is also this bedrock of economic and social structures mm. that makes it really difficult for you to make certain kinds of changes. Like, for example, I mean, I often think in terms of my, my students who are mostly in their 20s, mostly feel very equal with one another. You know, they've kind of, you know, the, the young women have been as, as successful at school as the young men. Um, you know, they, they don't really have a sense of, of inequality. And I just, you know, the point at which they actually, if, for those of them who decide to, uh, to have children, there's a kind of enormous reality that hits at that stage for most people. Not for everyone, but for most people. That's the point at which the whole structure of employment still still works on the basis that there's that you know somebody is going to be around to take care of the children you know just you know you can say there are nurseries and there are schools somebody's got to get them to the nursery somebody's got to pick them up from school um that's that's the point at which that's the point at which the gender pay gap comes in and that's the point at which men continue with full-time employment and many many women end up in part-time work do you think there should be literally no bias according to gender around something where there is a clear biological distinction like childbirth? Like, you know, like, like I'm not sort of, I'm yeah. not a person that's going to start using biology to dictate ideology because yeah. you know it's a sidestep to eugenics and Nazism. But, but one on a practical level, like my girlfriend gave birth to our daughter and her body feeds our daughter at the moment. So it seems that it's not even it's not an ethical decision. In I'm talking only personally. I'm yeah, not yeah, talking politically. Yeah. It just it seems like well that's taken care of because anatomy and biology are dealing with it. Of course, like I know a good deal of women who are just ferocious. I'm out there working, and they're having a very different story. But like you know, equality surely in an instance like this, Anne, is going to mean equality of power, equality of choice, not necessarily similar outcomes, similitude of outcomes. Right. Uh, so... Uh-oh, I didn't like that right, did you? <laughs> so, I, OK, so I do think, uh, of course, uh, women give birth, not men. Mm. Uh, uh, women breastfeed, not men, yeah. right? And of course, uh, and that, you know, is and needs to be reflected in maternity leave arrangements, right? Uh, but child rearing, child care to me, is is in no way differentiated between the sexes or, you know, we can certainly imagine a future in which it won't be. Mm. And, I mean, really, the kind of the, the guide that I would follow is that, you know, wherever you have a kind of um, a concentration of women in a certain kind of activity and men in another kind of activity, you ought to think, what's going on here, right? I mean, what's what's the why is it that it's kind of more women who are collecting the children from the school gates you know, more men doing stand-up comedy. You know, what's going on here? I mean, there may be, and sometimes there will be, 
kind of defensible reasons for that. But mostly they're to do with social structures, they're to do with social roles, social expectations. Mm. So that, you know, so there is a sense in which I, I do imagine a world, I mean, I don't think, I don't, Actually, I mean, I can I can make do with something considerably short of this, but I do imagine a world in which um, actually you you wouldn't be able to predict from one minute to the next whether it was going to be a man or a woman doing any of the activities that we do, whether it's kind of caring for children, whether any of the jobs in society, you know, any of the ways in which we're segregated into male and female, you just wouldn't be able to predict mm. because you know what other than childbirth, yes, breastfeeding, yes. What else? What else is there that would kind of, in a sense, provide a, a legitimate reason why you have the extraordinary concentrations of women in some areas and men in others? Now, as I say, I mean, I can live with a society far short of, <laughs> of that kind of, you know, complete, you know, lack of gender differentiation across all areas. And but, may I ask as well? Do you think is if this if it recurs in societies independently, does that give it a kind of legitimacy? I'm talking, of course, to the philosopher's friend, uh, the some indigenous un, uh, tribe. If if they allocate child rearing to females and hunting gathering to males, is that an indication of the of the veracity or simply of our need to? Evolve because, like, in terms mm. of equality, I, I like I'm completely right with you. I'm just trying, I'm like, and I agree with you that the most of our behavior is a result of acculturation mm. and socialization that does be, yeah. that seems to be becoming increasingly obvious to me. But what what is our vision? And you just explained that your vision is you wouldn't be able on the basis of gender, but that how that becomes quite radical quite quickly because of the you know the way that we dress, the way that, 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 that language is gendered, the, mm. the like, and, and also, do you think that quite quickly, and this is one of the things I've been thinking about a lot like you know when you sort of talk about you know only one in like when we had our chat before you're saying like it's considered a great success that one in four politicians is now female and of course what you sh would want is like 50% or 50% yeah. of women in the boardroom should yeah, be female yeah. or 50 or actresses should be earning the same amount of multi-millions as actors in Hollywood yeah. but in a way who gives a shit about that that's not going to change anything it's not going to change if we have the same political system this woman in a dress is oppressing me rather than that guy in a suit this is brilliant I mean isn't it that the real change has got a bit like I'm not um, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. in a position in terms of my gender to you know but uh, to quarrel with a leading uh, noted feminist but I'm saying that isn't our real challenge that to, to tackle these institutions head on I think there's there is a really serious issue there which I agree with you about which is I mean yes. it seems to me that one of the things that's happened particularly in the course of the last well it's it, basically the way in which the way in which capitalism has developed through the 19th into the 20th into the 21st century is that it's kind of it's opened up more and more of a kind of gap between the areas of employment broadly kind of high skilled professional employment where you know basically women have been drawn more and more into those they're they're sort of underrepresented compared with men mm. and that is an issue right power is an issue wherever you find it yeah. um you know, so all of those things matter. But alongside that kind of gender differentiation in those kind of higher positions of power and influence, you know, where the men have uh, continued to hold on to the power rather than the women, as well as that, you have this kind of very big gap opening up between low paid and high paid, mm. low status, high status in society in general, yeah. with women very often being the ones who are, in fact, in our society, the worst paid and the lowest status. You know, the you know, it's women who are the cleaners. It's women who do the kind of the work in the in the kind of the, the, the sort of the behind the scenes work in the catering trades. So that as well as the kind of the imbalance of gender power, you now have, I think you always did, but it seems particularly kind of apparent at the moment, this very big difference in terms of the life experiences of women, depending on where they're located in the class structure. And that's one of the really big challenges for contemporary feminist politics, is to find a way of, 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 of really kind of engaging with that. And it's one of the way, again, it's one of the ways in which people uh, dismiss feminism, is that if they think of it as only involved with women at the top, as you, you might say, only involved mm. with, you know, 
transforming the elites. I mean, I, I think, you know, wherever there's a power imbalance, it matters, you know. So, uh, you know, it really matters that our politicians, you know, who are making decisions about our lives are overwhelmingly male. I do think that. But I also think, I mean, I also agree with you <laughs> that there's a kind of sense at which you think, what, what about the kind of the life experiences of the vast majority of women the world round? Yes, yeah. because actually one could speculate that by getting, it, by getting women into that position, they would have to become kind of honorary or de facto males to operate within that system that has an essential maleness, an essential whiteness, regardless of their superficial femininity or you know ethnicity that the power structure sustains itself and can incorporate outsiders as long as they can conform much like uh, I'm, and I'm, here's me talking about something I know very little about which is, is not un- uncommon to me queer politics like that certain um, sects of the gay community can be incorporated in the mainstream as long as they economically behave like affluent white people then no problem but if your sexuality or your differentness or your otherness as it were is threatening then it cannot be included well <laughs> just just on that Please. i think what the research indicates is is that that's true where you talk where you're talking about much smaller proportions token token presence mm. of women when you do have situations and there are parts of the world where the, that's been more the case, uh, but in, in Europe, particularly the Scandinavian countries, where you've actually moved to a much greater parity between the ah. sexes. Actually, it does make a difference. Would that it? The kind of, you know, the, in, a, in a sense, women no longer have to kind of simulate the male when they're in a larger, a larger community, a larger network. You would you see know. a seismic shift. Well, if, well if, let's not kind of like, you know... Not let's not seismic. Let, <laughs> but you do see a shift, and you see, and you see a shift in the men as well. It begins to mm. change the, the, ma- the male way of thinking about what the policy priorities are. Um, you know, so the research indicates that there is a way in which... Your, your analysis is correct when it's very much about, uh, you know sort of the few token individuals. Mm. Um, but there is, there is a way in which you begin to change the real mm. balance and then different things begin to happen. So even if we made yeah. a relatively minor change to our democracy, yeah. like it must be 50% male, 50% female, like the population, you're saying you would see a difference. You'd see yeah, a difference in the way it. political discourse was conducted. It would be worthwhile and relevant. Thank you. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I, suppo- I, I suppose I get caught up on sort of... Uh, because I am you know, male, I, oh. like I... <laughs> thank you for noticing. <laughs> uh, I get like caught up. I, I, I suppose I don't invest in it. Now, here is some sponsorship announcement now by me. Right, so uh, you wrote this book um, about uh, our bodies, whose property. Now, this is this territory I'm interested in. Prior to being in a a monogamous relationship or or previous monogamous relationships, I very much identified myself around sexual uh, freedom, liberation, promiscuity. How I'm getting a sense that that may have been uh, detrimental to women that I was sleeping with. What are your views? And now, mm. if I speak absolutely mm. honestly, I suppose there's a tacit objectification in that. Uh, in that, I would regard women that I didn't know, as, in, like as yeah. not as commod. I mean, it sounds too brutal and reductive to say as commodities, but I would enthusiastically and excitedly regard women as right. This is what we're up to, you know. And I suppose why is that harmful, and how should that change? And I mean, it has changed in my personal case. But can you yeah, talk about yeah. it more generally? Well, well, I mean, it's. It, I mean, I think anything which, in a sense, reduces a complex human being to one part of who they are yeah. is is potentially a problem. Um, we do it in lots of ways, of course, not just in relation to bodies and sex, but you know, it's it's a problem. It's a way in which we um, we diminish. The um, we diminish the kind of the humanity of the person that we're engaged with, but, you, know, I, you know. It's, uh, I mean, I think one of the things about the the, the sort of the, the coming to think of, I think we're in we're in a world we're in a world where every, everything is very much commodified. Yeah. The world we live in at the moment, including our relationship to our bodies, so that increasingly, kind of, you know, people will say, well, you know, it's my body and I can do what I like with it. Um, and of course, that's true in one sense. I mean, you know, it, it, the sense of it, kind of it being my body, and I can do what I like with it, is 
and and here I'm kind of in a sense I'm 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 thinking from the perspective uh, not of you but of the women that you you might in retrospect think that you have been in some sense abusing in the sense of not taking them seriously as human beings right um, but but they they made a choice too right mm. so that the defence is nowadays is always you know people make their own choices you know uh, you know you know who are you to kind of say that the choices that people make are inappropriate if people enter into what you think is a diminished relationship but they're happy with it you know what you know what's the problem and and i think i think there is a real problem about the way we've come to think of freedom <laughs> as this freedom to do with your body or you know your property mm. what you choose which is a very odd way to think about relating to your body first of all it's very much about so there's me and then there's my body whereas actually <laughs> you're completely in your body, you know, you can't separate out yourself from your body in that kind of way. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of, uh, but it's also, it's, um, it's a kind of incredibly individualised way of yes. thinking about freedom. You I know. agree with you. Yeah. And I think that what I, I, <clears throat> I suppose it's a result of my personal perspective that where I interface with the ideas that come up in gender politics, it, it appears in my understanding of it to interface with ideas like materialism, consumerism, capitalism and individualism, like an idea like that your like your body is something that you own and that you use how you want to, that seems like an idea that is lacking in awareness and yeah, lacking in yeah. spirituality. When I think about my own evolution as a a man, I feel like I want to respect all people and I don't want I don't want to look at men or women mm, as mm. commodities there for my exploitation. And whilst I think that, you know, like part of my lifestyle was promiscuity, the, the commodification of people was quite ubiquitous. I think mm, that mm. I looked at people generally as what are you going to do for me? Yeah. Right. And if they didn't do any, if they yeah. couldn't do anything for me. I didn't see them as you know. It's not like, like look, I'm not the worst guy yeah, in the world. Yeah, I'm yeah. just saying that that's that that ideology operates on that basis. If your primary identification is I am me as an individual, this is my body. I'm in the world. Yeah, the world yeah. is there to be commodified and used. I read a very interesting speech by a man called Russell Mead. He calls himself an American Indian activist, sadly dead now. But he sort of rejected the paradigm, the economic paradigm that Europe presents. And I know that you did your PhD. You just said mm. on on colonialism. He said like that. He said that. Marxism and capitalism are different sides of the same coin. They, but neither of them allow you to be. Neither of you allow you to ha have a, a relationship with the world, not as is resource to be exploited and used. And you can extend that to yourself and other people as resources to be, you know, the idea of utility. Like, well, women are there to be used, yeah. men are there yeah. to be used, the planet's there to be used, rather than we are part of this. I would, I wonder, having uh, watched your TED Talk and, and looked over some of your writing, that, that this, like, the, the all pervading need for equality should include not just people of different gender or different gender identities but animals and the planet itself that we have to look at this idea of commodification materialization and utilization as long as we're looking at people and systems that are about exploitation or even utility if not exploitation then there is going to be a problem yeah so so i i, I mean i think in, if you extend it to animals you definitely have I mean, we definitely have to think about our responsibility to animals and to the planet, right, and not just see them as kind of means to our purposes. But I, but I, have, kind of, I have come to think that there's something about equality that it, it's very hard to kind of make sense of it except in a, in a way if it's bounded by the idea of the human. Because I, I think in particular, if you think of equality as having gradations, right, some people more equal than others, right, there's, there's something that's just completely contradictory to equality once you start equality with gradations. And I think it's very hard to think about extending the kind of, you know, equality that we like to think that we extend to human beings, but we don't, but we like to think that. It's hard to think of extending that to animals, except in a way in which you, in a sense, you include some of those animals and then perhaps a little bit, you go a bit further along the animal kingdom and in, you probably don't include the ants, right? You know, you kind of, you make all kinds of discriminations. Which colour ants? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, so for me, that's one of the reasons, and, and here I'm, I'm at odds, obviously, with, with, you know, many people who try to think about, who think about issues to do with um, animal rights and, and how we should approach it, but... I've kind of come to think that if you're going to take human equality really seriously, 
in a sense, you have to think about our relationship to the animal kingdom in different terms, not equality terms, in terms of responsibility, in terms of you know, not treating animals just as means to our purposes, all of that, yes, but I don't really see how you can... I don't see how you can kind of use the same language of equality. No, nor do I actually. But like, but my point, Anne, is that, that doesn't this problem of inequality and our acceptance of inequality and our systems of hierarchies and gradation begin with the idea that there is some kind of humanist supremacy, the idea that we are the alpha omega, that, 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 that the narrative of progress has us at its apex? And, and, and isn't that what we have to ultimately relinquish? And obviously integral to that is absolute gender equality and the abolition of the the language and structures that prevent this kind of equality. I mean, I don't want to make this sound kind of trite because uh, like everything that's personal, I suppose, can be reduced to sort of anecdotal and, and, and less valuable. But when my daughter was born, I immediately began to evaluate in ways that I hadn't before how I had placed limitations on what gender meant and how I would not want that to apply to her. Now, like this is not sort of some hegemonic ideal that I consider my daughter to be my property. I'm mm, very, very mm, aware of her mm, autonomy, even mm. at five months old. But I just sort of thought, wow, I would, I don't want this person to like, and like I got, like, there was some big sort of, not big, but there was a, sort of a smatter of media brouhaha because I said like, God, I don't immediately want to start dressing her up in pink and talking to her in a goo goo, gaga, cutesy female way. Um, when I play my baby, I'm like, I growl at her and I sort of try to treat her in a way well don't try to treat her it seems very natural to treat her in a way that's sort of playful and robust and I'm sort of want to respond to her spirit beyond what her gender is beyond it not that her gender is irrelevant but that it is not prohibitive to the person that she is it's astonishing though even when we have the best of intentions just how powerful that kind of that that those gender assumptions are so i mean this is this is probably not a very good example but my my son and his girlfriend recently got a kitten right lovely little kitten sort of beautiful markings you know kind of lively into everything martha uh, they took martha to the vet and the vet said well this is not martha this is a this is a male cat right awesome. so uh, well actually they could have said arthur they they decided to go for marcel but uh, but there you go what astonished me was that when they told me this story it was as though my perception of this kitten exactly the same kitten looking exactly the same right you know all the same personality <laughs> Suddenly changed, and I thought, "Oh, this isn't Martha. This is a tomcat, right?" And if you think of the power of projection, right? And I'm someone who's thought a lot about gender, exactly, right? And if you think of doing that with a kitten, (laughs) Marcel, (laughs) you better get down those pits and start mining. Take that dress off, for God's sake, Martha! It's very powerful. Yes, it's very powerful, even when you're conscious of, you know, of, uh, you know, conscious of the weight of it. So, does that power suggest some sort of a central truth, or does that just it it suggests the depth of indoctrination? Is that what you say? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and and, you know, it's. I mean, I always think about kind of struggling around uh, issues to do with gender as very much kind of two steps forward, one step back. Why? Because the kind of the return to those things which are so deeply ingrained in you. What are they? Uh, the assumptions about some kind of ways in which masculinity and femininity are somehow very different ways of being in the world. Plus, of course, all the actual we've we've talked about this, the actual social and economic pressures that, you know, mm. that, that sort of push you back into the cage, you know, mm. even when you're trying to get out of it. So, you know, you, you give the example of dressing your daughter in pink. That's kind of seems to have come back in the last 15 years. The kind of, you know, the idea of kind of pink and blue for babies you know, mm. there was a period when that went. Uh, I think similarly, there's lots of things to do with media representations of women, where it seems to me that we're kind of we've gone backwards after a certain period in which things opened up. It's it's as though, yeah, it's as though um, it's a, it's a pretty continuous movement. I heard that it's to do with marketing, and like the yeah. in children's toys, like selling boys' toys covered in camo and go like what they say in marketing with female products, pink it and shrink it and put ten percent on it. Like with female right razors, they turn them pink, they make them smaller, they charge ten percent more yeah. for like gendered pr- products. And I think it is to do with the, like that marketing is increasingly about specificity and identity. And if you can make someone yeah. identify with a product on the basis of their gender, then that's an, one that's more one hook. way of doing it. Yeah. And if you can establish in human beings that there's something that you're supposed 
supposed to be being. There's something that you're supposed to be doing. You can break someone's relationship with their own essence and you can start making them thinking of themselves as this is your role, this is your function, rather than being in some kind of commune with, in, in, in my framework, some transcendent truth that is trying to realise itself materially through you but will always be secondary to what is ulterior, what is absolutely real. But my personal framework, and, and, and I suspect, well, I don't know why I'm banding prejudices about, but like, I sort of, I'm harbour quite, uh, I'm looking at the world from a spiritual perspective increasingly because I feel like that there are limitations to all materialistic worldviews and they'll ultimately lead us to limitation, that rationalism is in itself limited. Now you've talked about like the, the um, equation of masculinity with rationalism and femininity with the irrational the emotion, yeah. and the emotions, yeah. yeah, and the irrational, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. emotions then seen as irrational. Which also yes. happens to yes. sort of like in the condemnation of Islam and otherness in general. Is yeah. that true, that the hegemonic male central narrator sees whether it's the sort of the mysterious Arab or the female as the sort of irrational sort of religious uh, forever fluctuating nut jobs that need to be kept in order by rationalism and materialism. So, so do you say when you're saying that that, that uh, women uh, must demand absolute equality? Are you saying that other traits and aspects that are hmm, t- typically associated with femininity ought be given similar uh, equality? Or are you saying that women are not less rational or more emotional? Uh, right. Yeah. No. I, no. I think I think the way in which the kind of the reason emotion kind of uh, opposition has been set up and so overlaid with the kind of the male-female, so that the reason is male and the kind of the, the emotion is female. That's what has to be challenged. It's the kind mm. of, it's the setting those up in, in opposition. Um, so, I mean, like one, one of the things, you know, like if you think about emotions, so this is an example that's kind of, that's often given in the philosophical literature. When you feel fear, which is an emotion, the reason you feel fear is because there are certain reasons, right? You've had certain experiences, you've read something, you know that this situation is potentially dangerous. It's not like kind of instinct or something that's acting. That The things that we think of as emotions are themselves grounded in reasons. <laughs> uh, so that the kind of the, there's the idea that there's kind of, there's rationality on the one side and then there's emotionality on the other mm. is, is itself... Um, it's, it's already kind of set up a kind of false divide and then it's yeah. superimposed on that, the male-female. So it's not a matter of saying... I mean, I think in... I mean, obviously feminists do also say, look, women are rational. You know, it's not that kind of women are kind of driven by their hormones and can't think straight. You know, so obviously, the, you know, we make arguments about that. But I think the more profound argument is to kind of challenge the the particular way in which that reason, emotion, yes. opposition has been set up. I'm starting to see more and more that these taxonomies are erroneous, that there is yeah. no real distinction. Like earlier on when you said, how, how is there a, an eye separate from the body? Like, you know, that sort of yeah. my, yeah. my psyche, my emotions, yeah. my thoughts and anatomy are yeah. Yeah. indistinguishable yeah. and interwoven. And I, I thank you. I've always felt sort of somewhat shamed by my own... Uh, like emotion, like I've always been quite an emotional person and uh, hysterical, in fact. And the word hysterical, like yes, you know, has yeah, sort of female yeah, yeah, connotations. Yeah, very female, yes. Yeah. And like, so like, I think that perhaps feminism. There's a lot that men can gain from gender equality, actually, in that it's closer to truth and closer to reality. And I think a, a lot, like my personal feelings of like, like. I felt like I didn't have access to ideas of masculinity that are that are conventional, traditional, mm. given my background, that are sort of sort of overt. And I think like a, a lot of men feel that. Now I'm not trying to transform this into a conversation about the rights of men because sort of, that seems to be a sort of a bit of an, a trope. No, of but the but it is absolutely true that kind of I mean, if feminism is kind of you know means anything, it means the transformation for all of us, right? And mm. and I do think. It me- it has to mean that me- there are certain areas where men lose power. I don't see how, you know, that that can't be part of it. But it's a it's also it's about enabling men to engage with their children. It's about enabling men to have more fulfilling relationships with women and with other men. Mm-hmm. It's it's about you know a transformation that all of us ought to be you know ought to look forward to. Yeah, we should be embracing it actually because like what is this like what have men ordinary men like, if there is such Ordinary, a thing, yeah. uh, got to lose. You know, like when it's when you talk about that, there will be. Sorry, when when you talk about um, 
power being like that some men will inevitably lose power what, who do you mean yeah i mean i do mean the powerful yes i mean there's but but also there are uh, you know there are ways in which, i i mean i think if you think about domestic violence domestic violence is sometimes connected with precisely uh, the experience of losing power in society as a whole is it? and then playing it out by establishing power within the domestic relationship. So it, I am mostly thinking of the transfer of power from, you know, the kind of, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the powerful men of our world. Um, but but it, it's, it isn't just about that because there are ways mm. in which... Uh, um, there are ways in which the kind of the, in a sense, the having power over somebody becomes a compensation for feeling powerless in your life. I see that. But then, of course, there is an intrinsic relationship there that if if there were more, more gender equality in positions of power, yeah. in fact, if there were more equality in positions of power generally, in fact, if power itself yeah. were redistributed and some of the institutions of power were broken down and shared, then perhaps you wouldn't have huge swathes of men exercising power with brutality in the home. So you're saying that sort of two prominent areas where female empowerment is absolutely necessary is in visible positions of power, that's mm. obvious, and, and that there would be a transition even if it didn't go far enough in sort of the dem democratic or, uh, or corporate sphere. Mm. Uh, and then you're saying in the home mm. that you're... I'm sure it's backed up by evidence, but the, the, what you're saying is a lot of abuse of women domestically is occurring as a result of disempowerment. Some of it, some of it. Some I of mean, it. I wouldn't kind of say that it's a majority, but it's it's uh, there's there's certainly uh, yeah there's certainly evidence that people people play out their own sense of powerless in the wider world by becoming. Um, yeah, by establishing power in, in, in intimate relationships. What do you think about uh, what changes in the democracy do you think uh, ought be on the agenda now? This is a really peculiar time, isn't it? Yeah. A time of division, a time of sort of explicit and overt rhetoric around hate, time like, you know, the recent kind of... Uh, um, sort of violent attacks on London streets, seemingly capitalised upon by sort of a rapacious media. What do we do? Uh, what, what What do you think are important? Um, what What do we need to introduce to this conversation to stop it being dominated by ignorance and hate? Well, uh, we need to think about citizenship as really including everyone. And and f for me, and I think f for me, feminism cannot just be about thinking about equality on a gender basis. It kind of like if you think about, if, if you're concerned about equality between the sexes, you're also deeply concerned about the kind of inequalities and hierarchies that are played out between majority ethnic and minority ethnic communities, the ways in which uh, in contemporary Europe uh, Muslims are vilified as somehow the kind of the alien other uh, you have to be concerned about all of that and you have to be concerned about what are the mechanisms that can make our democracies genuinely inclusive. Mm. Um, what, and, and there, I think, you know, I mean, it sort of question is about, you know, making our, uh, our decision-making assemblies actually representative yes. <laughs> of the, you know, the real range of, of the citizen uh, body is an important part of that. Can they but that's only a small part of it, it seems to me. Can they yeah. ever do that while they're so centralised, when there's so few of them and when they're so entrenchantly um, beholden to the objectives of the already powerful? Uh, they can do that, but it may be that the kind of the, uh, the effect of it remains limited unless it's kind of combined with uh, also a kind of uh, devolution of power to mm. different, different kind of... Uh, sectors within society, by which I don't just mean local local democracy and local authorities, but, you know, you can think of a kind of much wider range of ways in which we become empowered with as citizens within our within our democracies. Um, but there's no great movement in either of these directions at the moment, it seems to me. No, it seems that the primary reaction to globalisation has been sort of a, a resurgent nationalism. Nationalism, yeah. But, but neither of those ideas are going to be particularly helpful to these ordinary people sat, in there, sat around battering their spouses of either gender <laughs> just to make it through the afternoon. Not trivialising domestic violence. Yeah, thank you, yes. <laughs> or any kind of violence, actually. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's just that domestic violence gets... Uh, well, I mean, men are more exposed to men-on-men -men violence 
and women are more exposed to men-on-women violence. I deliberately tried to use the word yeah. spouse because I thought yeah. that would avoid it being gendered. Yes. <laughs> Try to do that. So my, one of my primary obligations is to sort of use comedy as a kind of detonator, but it, it is, as detonation implies, a kind of a minefield because sometimes I'm unaware of when I'm in this position of power. You know, that's, that's one of the... That when my role is... Uh, when, when my role is needs to be one of um, receding or sort of uh, openness, and when it ought to be one of mm, what do I want to say, sort of dominance, and like because like I, if when change is so evidently required, Anne, like, I sense that this passion and intensity that I have long felt and that was expressed sort of a year and a half ago through sort of getting involved in sort of like sort of a pap media disputes, if that's going to be utilised, if that's going to be if if my voice can be of use, you know, like comedy is going to be part of it. Humour mm. is going to be part of it. And the elimination of fear somehow, the sort of the hope that we can... Because like, what I'm learning slowly is that people have got to be able to re- realise themselves beyond the context that we are presented with, whether they are to do with gender, class, ethnicity, although those things similarly can be embraced. I suppose what, one of the things I'm learning on this brilliant course that I'm doing at SOAS, Religion in Global Media, under the tutelage of a, a fantastic teacher, is that we, none of us have the right to prescribe how another person is seen or what how, what their selfhood or personhood ought be defined by. It, it's a curious business. It's a curious business because I think all of us as human beings reach for certain tools. I'm forever watching, like, you know, sort of someone will be talking about equality in the respect of uh, others and then open a window in the classroom without asking anybody. Mm-hmm. Somebody like, you know, so, or like people, like certain kind of people will be given respect when they're speaking and others won't it's like you know you see which how dominance and power asserts itself in any context and the only context that's relevant is the one that we're in moment to moment i suppose this one in my case yes yeah yeah no i mean a huge i mean i think you know there's this slogan in feminism the personal is political Mm. and and that's kind of very much trying to capture the way in which the in a sense the very routinized parts of our daily lives are also part of the kind of the power structures that, that sustain um, certain kinds of uh, very uh, certain certain forms of constraining and, and confining us. I mean, I, I disagree with you about about some of some of what you're saying because I I, I, I sent you you have very much a kind of sense of there's some kind of true essence there which has been kind of blocked in various ways by you know assumptions, power structures, whatever it is. I, I'm not convinced that, that any of us starts out with a true essence. I think we make who we are and we make it uh, in a way through through challenging, uh, trying to transform or sometimes just by accepting and conforming to the various kind of expectations that are put on us. We make ourselves. Right? Why do you think that? Why do I think that? It, well, I think it's partly just I, I can't see what the basis is for thinking that there is a kind of true essence, you know, given that everything that we everything that we are is so much shaped by all of the kind of the social influences around us it seems to me that the task is to is to develop different social influences rather than to strip away everything and find some true me underneath um and i i think that's one of the kind of differences between people that kind of that's mm. that some people uh have a very strong sense of a kind of some true essence which needs to be liberated from all of these kinds of constraints I, to me that kind of metaphor doesn't doesn't really kind of it, it, it doesn't make much sense to me i see it much more as a kind of process of of creating and constructing a new me i think that well, it's, it's difficult to argue with you but my, the basis for my personal belief and is that without it without an essential truth then we are manufacturing narratives of, of distinction without any basis for for ultimate judgment of or, or val or validity like we like well why why not tyranny then why not tyranny if all there is is just this material? And the, the other, my, my intuition is that if on the level of biology, whilst, you know, there may not be an essential Anne or an essential Russell, this body did basically grow. Now, I may have influenced it with the time, type of food I ate and the type of drugs I took and the type of exercise I'd done, but it basically just turned up 
and took care of itself according to some sort of magnetic force that I've got no control over. And sometimes on a sort of a very, you know, I guess I have, I have a romantic and perhaps somewhat religious worldview. Um, and like sometimes when I'm looking at people, I sense that there is something that is very pure. And like, and I don't suppose it matters very much, but for me, it provides a way of regarding human beings and life in general as something that is sacred and special and worthy of saving. Now, if there are only the narratives that mankind are constructing and we should come up with ones that are nicer for people in the subcontinent or people that are currently oppressed, which are like, you know, in a way, I suppose it doesn't matter what motivates people to be beautiful and loving, but it's just my personal one does come from the idea of a a sense that something is trying to realise itself. Now, you know, it's yeah, very difficult yeah, for yeah. me or St Francis yeah, of well, it's, it's, to prove. I mean, I'm, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not sure it's something that one can kind of... I suppose, I mean, I would say, just as you say, well, how do we know that the kind of the, the new narratives are any better than the old narratives? And I would say, how do you know you've arrived at this true essence? When's, what's the point of which you, you somehow know that you've got there mm. as opposed to simply having produced another layer mm. of social influences that have kind of made you think, oh, yeah, this is the real me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very sceptical of notions of authenticity and the real me, um, but I am very much committed to making the world a better place so that we can become different kinds of people. Oh, I like that. And I think that we can both, that's something that yeah. we can both agree on, although we obviously see the world quite distinctly. On the issue of gender, I think we're com- I, I completely concur. And I've learned a lot from talking to you, but I can see it's something that I'm going to need to learn more about. You know, like when you said that thing of how will we know when we've arrived, when I was learning about... Um, that like after the when this sort of after nine eleven, I've got this off of Brad Evans. After nine eleven, there was a sort of like all manner of papers set up by those you know those papers that are funded by off key people like Dick Cheney and that. Yeah. Like they were saying like they're saying how do we know when the war against terror has been won? And one of them said, and this was like a prominent paper. Forgive me for the lack of names and proof and evidence and footnotes, but like it was like was like well the reason the way we'll know that war of terror has been won is that we'll be able to go wherever we want and fulfil our economic obje- objectives. Oh right, right. That yes. was what they. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's that, good. That would We've be the measure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Total global tyranny yes. and yeah. submission of every, of the world's peoples. Oh, good. Well, that's that done then. Yeah. And like I so say, it makes you realise how impossible that is and how bloody tyrannical and awful it is and I suppose how would we know when we'd arrive, I suppose we would know when we felt that the, the people on the planet and the planet itself were benevolently and lovingly run autonomously by people that felt free, that people were heard and people were self-determined like now what would, like according to I suppose, not according to their own judgement not according to some sort of imposed judgement yeah yeah, what except that our own judgment is always formed in relation to other people. So feminists have this kind of term that they use uh, called relational autonomy, which is saying, yes, of course, we want to be autonomous. We want to be our own selves. We want to be self-determining. But if you kind of frame that as kind of, you know, the me, you know, um, rather than seeing autonomy as something that develops in our relations to others, right, is sustained by our relations to others, um, then, then you're off on the wrong track. And, and, and actually, from some of the things that you've said, it seems to me you would agree with that. And but, but it kind of it means it's not, it's it's it is about kind of thinking about being autonomous in our relations with others. And for me, that means not so much a kind of delving back to the real me, but it means a kind of working with others more collectively towards the kind of freedom that freedom and equality that one would like to see around one. Yes. Working together collectively towards yeah, mutual well, that, that, freedom. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're saying. So if you are listening to this, and I, here's some prejudice, you're in a white van. You're from Dartford. You're <laughs> spitting out of the window while smoking a Rothmans. <laughs> that your freedom, our freedom, yeah. is all interconnected. Mm. Yeah, a lot of it just sounds like words. Um, but well, it, I mean, but it relates. But it relates to the, real change. We're on the radio, man. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we start using dance in this medium. We're going to be in a lot of trouble. The medium is the message. I know. I, I know what you mean. But like, I, I hope that you uh, understand 
the that I am quite serious about personal change, and I'm mm. quite serious about many of the ideas that you've discussed. And I, I really appreciate you coming here and uh, explaining it to me so patiently and clearly and personally. Is there anything else that you want to add? I've not done anything mad or sexist during the whole time that we've been in here, have I? No, I don't have to tick you off for anything. Oh, I've got through it without being admonished. <laughs> And thank you very much for coming here and uh, sharing your wisdom and truth with us. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks for we sort of like the title of this is under the skin this podcast. Yeah, but I noticed yeah. that it's one of the phrases you use to denote people's superficial imposition of a type of understanding, like you know, oh, we're all the same under, under the skin. Yes. That's not what this title means. Though. It means let's get under, yeah, under the superficial under the, understanding yeah. and under people's skins. That was the sort of secondary yeah, thing, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, potentially we thought that was a good double meaning. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. Okay, thank you. Well, that went well, didn't it? With Anne Phillips, there was a couple of moments where I thought I'd upset her with my remarks. That um, that spouse abuse joke. That should, I shouldn't have done that, but. Uh, hopefully she understood the spirit of it now if you like this show please subscribe and review it on iTunes we only want five star reviews please thanks for listening to our show we love you next week we are talking to Yuva Noah Harari Sapiens he wrote and he'll be talking to us about his new book which is called Homo Deus which sounds to me like he's saying man god but we'll be asking him about that next week keep listening to us love you bye